Hi there, this is Allison McGee, your host. I'm coming to you at the turn of seasons here in Minneapolis when a switch flips and suddenly it's cool and crisp and the sun goes down early and rises late, later. The time of year when I'm done weeding and deadheading, I'm done with my garden entirely. The time of year when, hey, I remember sweaters and jeans and boots. This month, my brand new novel, Where We Are, made its way into the world. Where We Are is about two teenagers, Micah and his girlfriend, Sesame. Micah's parents have been sucked into a cult led by a man who calls himself the prophet. It's been a slow and inexorable uh, process over the last few years, and Micah has stood helplessly by watching as his parents let their lives be taken over. Now the prophet has taken not only them, but Micah himself, and they are living somewhere in the basement of an abandoned building in South Minneapolis. At least that's what Micah's girlfriend Sesame believes. Because when Micah doesn't show up as planned and she goes by his house, she finds a cryptic message written hastily in code on the whiteboard in the kitchen. Micah's phone, along with his parents' phones, are lined up neatly by the toaster. Sesame tells her best friends. She reports Micah's disappearance to the police. She checks with school, but no one believes that Micah is actually in trouble. Sesame alone believes that his life is in danger. She alone is determined, desperate to find him. Sesame is used to desperation, and she relies entirely on determination and her own wits to get her through life For even though she has just turned 18, she's been living on her own since she was 15. No one but herself to rely on. The character of Sesame in Where We Are, Sesame, who has built a secret home in an abandoned garage, who scrapes together enough money for her bills by various part-time jobs while also going to high school full-time, this fierce girl who at such a young age has lived through so much loss, was inspired by a longtime friend of mine, who I'll call Sarah. What Sarah lived through her entire her entire childhood as the daughter of a sociopath is nearly unimaginable, and yet she is one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever known. I admire Sarah more than she can know. She agreed to be interviewed for Words by Winter. Here is our conversation, lightly condensed and edited. Note that while it is me asking the questions, Sarah's answers have been recorded by voice actor Devin O'Brien. So, Sarah, what was your home life like that it felt necessary to leave it? For most of my young life, home was not a place of refuge or relaxation or nurturance. My mother was severely mentally ill and sadistically cruel. 
I realize in retrospect that one of her multiple disorders was probably antisocial personality disorder, which people commonly call sociopathy. Unfortunately, she was my primary caregiver for the first years. I was finally rescued from her as a young teen, but my father married another woman who was also verbally and emotionally abusive. Overall, I ended up experiencing 8 out of the 10 adverse childhood events now used to assess childhood trauma, which is a clinical way of saying that I survived a lot of shit, and while I thought I escaped my problems by leaving home, of course they were all I knew, and I carried them with me and kept finding people who would repeat those same patterns. It took me until I was 40 to figure out that I don't have to live with someone who disrespects me and doesn't violate my boundaries and trust. You were on your own, supporting yourself by age 17. Can you tell us where and how you lived? What were your circumstances back then? I spent my childhood looking toward adulthood as a chance to escape, and it was an astonishing freedom to have my own space to come home to where no one would criticize me, insult me, wish I was something different than I was. I relished the relief of having my own space and control of my own destiny. I rented a tiny efficiency apartment furnished with furniture from the alleys. It would only fit a TV stand, bookcase, couch, and mattress, which was stored upright behind the couch during the day because it took up the entire floor space, and dishes bought from Goodwill's cast-offs sold for pennies a pound. They have this type of store in various places across the country now, but back then it was a novel idea that most people had never heard of. On the backside of a nondescript warehouse in an industrial area, I don't think there was a sign at first, you just had to know. It was filthy and dusty, and you had to dig through piles of crap that didn't get sold at Goodwill. But it was a dream for a broke kid like me. Decades later, I still have a handmade blue pottery bowl that I bought to eat cereal out of in that efficiency. I had been working for years, starting with babysitting at age 9, and went full-time as soon as I graduated high school but even the efficiency was hard to afford on a minimum wage kitchen job. I stayed there just a couple months until a coworker said he and his girlfriend were looking for someone to join in renting an art studio in a warehouse in downtown St. Paul. It was illegal to live in, but the owners would turn a blind eye and we could do whatever we wanted with the space. It turned out to be the top floor, we grandiosely called it the penthouse, of a mini storage building that also rented studio space to a few artists. The freight elevator opened right into a space that had been something dusty and industrial. We had to build a wall to delineate delineate our space, and within that we had to build walls for our personal bedrooms and a jerry-rigged kitchen, which was a stainless steel sink plumbed straight into the pipes in the middle of the room, and a counter where we set a hot plate and a beat-up fridge. We didn't really know how to build walls. It was a patchwork disaster and beastly hot as the sun beat on the tar roof in summertime but my share was only $300 a month, which went down to $100 a month when we found two more roommates and built rooms for them too. I was the naive young square in a den of older people doing a lot of sex and drugs, but I was used to dysfunction and this was a preferable kind because it allowed me room to follow my path. If I didn't want to pop pills, well, more for them. There was room for me to stay out late, blast music, and hang out with friends which is what a lot of teens dream of, but more than anything, to simply live my life without pressure. Or should I say, with only the regular daily pressures of being young and broke and figuring out my way in the world, which were immeasurably lighter than living with people who yelled at me and made me feel unloved. 
There was a massage parlor in the basement, which we all knew provided happy endings, and where I was repeatedly offered work as a topless masseuse. I was shocked that they would want a thick girl, but they said the guys would be way too busy enjoying the bountiful bosom to be critiquing the waist. I wished for the moxie to accept, because money was tight after transferring to the University of Minnesota, which was more expensive, but I was a shy introvert who had no self-confidence, and I don't think I could have worked with my clothes off for any amount of money. I was reminded of myself when reading about Sesame, because while my closest friends did know where I live, we had to be careful not to let on to any legitimate businesses in the building for fear they would report our illegal residents to the building inspectors. We all said we were artists if asked. We weren't, although some of us aspired to be and ended up in the arts. We didn't make a lot of noise during the day. We kept the door to the hallway closed and locked so no one could wander by and peek in. We didn't use our jerry-rigged shower with a mop closet on the fifth floor except for after hours. We tried not to use the freight elevator during business hours, but rather took the seven flights of stairs from the side entrance so that we wouldn't be seen going in and out so often. It sounds restrictive, but it was outweighed by primarily the financial benefit and also the liberty to have dance parties with speakers rattling the windows, to paint your rooms whatever color you wanted, to build and tear down walls to change your space at will, To have a lifestyle that was bigger and wilder, that fit the tall windows and lofty ceilings of a warehouse. But with the kind of childhood I had, I was used to being unobtrusive. I was used to being secretive, to lying, to hiding who I really was and what I was really doing. It had been protecting myself that way my whole life, and it seemed perfectly natural. I wouldn't live in a place zoned for residential living with a real shower and a toilet in my apartment until I was 22 years old. What? Do you think helped you get through? Was it your own personality traits, outside forces, a belief or faith in something, hope for the future? That is such a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer. When I was a younger teenager, spirituality helped me get through some rough years. The idea of a loving God was alluring because if I felt no one else loved me, at least God did. I'm grateful for the comfort that gave me but I started questioning organized religion and had set it aside by the time I was Sesame's age. It was very hard to put myself through college, working full-time and going to school full-time, so I had to work a lot of hours to pay my living expenses and for my books and tuition. It was impossible to feel deeply alone in the world and to feel fundamentally unworthy of love even for myself. It was good to have a motorcycle and a sunlit studio and a sense that if I kept on going, the road of my life would lead me somewhere I wanted to be. I guess I just never allowed myself the possibility to stop moving forward. I did have dreams for the future, of going to college and traveling the world, but in retrospect, it was so hard to achieve with my limited resources that I'm surprised I thought I could, or didn't give up. I guess I just believed I could make it on my own, so I did. And now I'm grateful for my younger self's tenacity. Sarah, when you look back on those days, what are some of your abiding memories? One of my favorite memories from when I was Sesame's age is feeling like I was so poor, but I owned a piece of the sky. I would go out on the roof of our penthouse and picnic, read, drink coffee, drink beer, hang out, whatever, eight stories above the city streets. We were on the edge of downtown and there weren't other tall buildings too close, so the view was expansive. I I could watch the sunset over St. Paul, watch rainstorms moving in lay on my back and feel like the night sky was a starry quilt the world was drawing over me that would cover me no matter what was to come. 
I also bought a big vintage cruiser motorcycle, sold cheap by a friend's uncle, and I discovered an unparalleled passion in my motorcycle. The thrill of 900 cc's between my legs, the rush of wind against my face, the way a twist of my wrist could thrust me forward, the way it would let me lean deeply into the curves but never let me fall. It made me feel powerful and free in a way nothing ever had before or has since. listen to my friend Sarah, when I read her responses to those interview questions, when I think about all that she has gone through in her life, and especially when I see her now, she's always on the move. She's always laughing with her friends and her family. She gives so much of her time and energy to the nonprofits she volunteers for, to making the world better for others. I always keep in the back of my mind that motorcycle of hers. She's told me many times over the years that the first thing she intends to buy, once a little more time has gone by and she's gotten her own children through their teen years, is a motorcycle. She cannot wait. And when I picture her in my mind riding that bike on some highway where she can go fast and free, it is this gorgeous poem by Danusha Lamaris that comes to mind. Bonfire Opera by Danusha Lamaris In those days, there was a woman in our circle who was known, not only for her beauty, but for taking off all her clothes and singing opera. And sure enough, as the night wore on and the stars emerged to stare at their reflections on the sea, and everyone had drunk a little wine, she began to disrobe, lose her great bosom and the tender belly, pale in the moonlight, the Viking hips, and to let her torn raiment fall to the sand as we looked up from the flames. And then a voice lifted into the dark, high and clear as a flock of blackbirds. And everything was very still, the way the congregation quiets when the priest prays over the incense and the smoke wafts up into the rafters. I want to be that free inside the body, the door of pleasure opening, one after the next, an arpeggio climbing the ladder of sky, and all the while she was singing and wading into the water until it rose up to her waist and then lapped at the underside of her breasts, and the aria drifted over us, her soprano spare and sharp in the night air. And even though I was young, somehow in that moment, I heard it, the song inside the song, and I knew then that this was not the hymn of promise, but the body's bright wailing against its limits, a bird caught in the cathedral, the way it tries to escape by throwing itself again and again against the stained glass. Well, that is it for today, my friends. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please spread the word by sending this link to someone else who might like it. Give us a good rating if you're inclined. And if you are interested in picking up a copy of my new novel, Where We Are, which stars Sesame, 
the fierce girl inspired by my fierce friend, Sarah, I invite you to do so. It's available everywhere you buy your books. Original theme music for our show is by Dylan Parisi, who can be found at dylan.field.parisi, P-E-R-E-S-E, on Instagram. Today's poem, Bonfire Opera, by Danusha Lameris, is from her new book by the same name. It was read by Luke O'Brien with permission of the poet and the University of Pittsburgh Press. For more of Danusha Lameris's gorgeous work, please check out her website, Danusha, D-A-N-U-S-H-A, Lameris, L-A-M-E-R-I-S, dot com. Words by Winter is created and hosted by me, writer Allison McGee. Tell me what you are going through, what uncertainties or troubles you're dealing with, and I'll go in search of a poem to help you and all of us through the way that poems have been helping me ever since I was a little girl. Sometimes life feels too hard, too intense, too much, and if that's where you are right now, and you're not alone. Send me a voice memo via email to wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com or just drop me a line at the same address, which again is wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com. For more information, go to alisonmcgee.com. Words by Winter, conversations, reflections, and poems about the passages of life because it's rough out there and we have to help each other through. Thank you.